Uncrushed is a platform and community for mental health awareness. Through sharing our personal experiences of the mental health challenges that we have faced, we can help to break down the many stigmas associated with mental health. We are untold, unanswered, and united. Today on the Uncrushed podcast, we spoke with Janelle Crunk. Janelle's history in the mental health capacity and the mental health space has really changed the way that veterans cope, deal, and re-enter society. Janelle's expertise has helped hundreds and hundreds of people, thousands possibly, get back on their feet, adjust to the way that the world typically works, and be able to function as an active member of society. Her focus on mental health is pretty specific, but we felt like it was a a needed part of the show. So listening to Janelle, you should keep in mind that Janelle's practice definitely plays a role in how she thinks about mental health today. And her personal story is rather touching as well. So you can see how somebody grows into this profession based on the past that they experience. Here's more from Janelle. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome, Podcast Nation, to the Uncrushed Podcast. We are here with Janelle Kronk. She is a co-founder of Uncrushed, and she is also the, the founder of Creative Strategy. Tell me about Creative Strategy. Um, it's a consulting group. I'm um, currently working on a whole bunch of contracts right now, um, and particularly in the behavioral health space and also with military and law enforcement. Awesome. So yeah. it sounds like your work experience definitely lines up with the Uncrushed mission, which is to spread awareness about mental health, especially in business. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for those of you that are just joining us in the Uncrushed community, our mission is to help as many people as possible to know that no matter what they might be going through, grief, anxiety, depression, loss, uh, burnout, especially in business, we want you to know that you're not alone in life in general. This is an important mission for us because we all have this connection to the mental health community in some way, shape, or form. Um, so our mantra is untold, unanswered, and united, and together we are uncrushed. So join us in this in this great podcast. We're going to learn about Janelle and how she's contributing to the uncrushed community. Tell us all about yourself, Janelle. Oh, gosh. Okay. I always want to do a pun, but I won't. I'll hold back a little bit. So... Um, Gosh, you know, my story My story began actually when I was a child, which I didn't realize until I was older. Uh, it really began when my father passed away uh, five years ago, November 13th. Um, and my whole world was pretty much uh, just gone. I became a totally different person. And even though I am in behavioral health, I triage quite a bit. And uh, so I decided to take on the world is really what I decided to do. Um, instead of just trying to help my father, uh, he transitioned and he, he passed away from going AMA from the VA um, to drink. We didn't realize that he had relapsed. And mm. unfortunately, he contracted MRSA and it was septic, um, sepsis. And uh, so it was horrific. And so I decided to take on a new role and be this national business development uh, individual that basically connected partnerships, joint ventures and partnerships with um, a significantly large organization. And I just traveled and traveled and traveled and I was getting sick. I didn't realize it. Um, I got this thing called systemic candida, which was like, I was stressed out so much. I could, I could barely even eat. I got really sick and I had to go on a very strict diet And then I also realized that some of the behaviors that I didn't want to inherit from my parents, um, 
I ended up inheriting. Uh, one of them was I wasn't around for my daughter. I was traveling around so much, and my mom was not around when I was a child. She was, I was, my dad was my sole provider. So I didn't put that together until later, you know, that I was, you know, I felt guilty. The the mom guilt is always there in business development. It just always is. So I always justify that, that I was a professional and this was my job. Um, I could have easily said no more often. That was probably one of my biggest, biggest lessons. Did you feel like you might've lost some opportunities if you said no though? Um, I mean, I think when you're hungry and you have purpose, it, 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 basically trumps everything. And you right? love what you do, right? Yes, yeah. absolutely. And I was, you know, I was doing a lot of presentations and, and I'm, I'm also a trainer. So I was training quite a bit and, you know, you get really high. It feels really, really good. Mm-hmm. I mean, talk about dopamine when you're, when you're in front of, you know, a group of 2,500 individuals yep. that are delegates and they're nodding and understanding that we have to do something about whether it's trauma or substance abuse or what have you, that we all have to create awareness and have the, the courage to reach out, you know, um, that became kind of my number one priority and I lost touch with my family. So what was it that happened? What's the, everybody kind of has like this thing, this story of crawling out of whatever hole they might've come into. Um, I know I had a realization when I had to crawl out of my hole and I immediately made the necessary switch, which was quite traumatic, Mm -hmm. but what was it for you that caused you to step back and examine everything you were doing and then make an adjustment both in the professional and personal life? That's a huge step. Yes. And this is a very vulnerable question. So this is good. Um, so when I came home, some of the patterns of my, my ex, uh, were really affecting me. Uh, I really felt that he had some depression and I'm such a fixer. It's really hard for me not to coach. And I was seeing therapists once a week. I, you know, was trying to walk the walk as much as I could. But as soon as I'd hear his, his, uh, you know, the keys and the door jingle, I would instantly get angry. And so I'd start having these fits of rage. Mm. Um, I would react towards my vice president uh, of my company if he made a decision without me. Um, very, like, they, it was almost like a possession. And it reminded me of how— You're certainly not yourself in those no, moments. No, no. And— when you have anger like that or rage like that, it kind of builds just like everything else, like depression or anything. It almost feeds you. So you say things even more like you can't control it. And then you snap out of it and you're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I said X, Y, and Z. Oh yeah. I'm so sorry. You know? So I was noticing that I was drinking uh, a lot more than I used to, mm-hmm. to just to numb my feelings. Um, and then I also was involved in an affair and that was kind of my moment where I was like, whew, Okay. I could be traumatizing many people on many different levels. And so I needed to go get some help. And I, I basically self-diagnosed myself to a mentor of mine in our industry and went and got, and went to an intensive program, which is a two, two week long um, program. Mm-hmm. And it was really what I found out was that I had some serious <laughs> childhood trauma that I had not addressed. And I always thought that made me resilient. I don't need to talk about my childhood. It made me so resilient, all the things that happened, but, um, no, you have to unzip. You have to really take a really hardcore look at your childhood and do a lot of experiential treatments. That's what helped me a lot, at least the equine therapy and the chair work. And um, it, it's a non-medication facility that I went to. So it was a nonprofit. Very Shout holistic. out all you non-medicine related yeah. s- services out there. Mm-hmm. I really respect the, the no opioid 
ways that people yeah. go about it. I think that's very beneficial. Right. Um, and so, same with Save a Warrior, too. They're very, sim- very similar philosophies, which is it comes down to family systems. And just because I didn't process it and I decided to dig myself in work and, you know, make these partnerships and joint ventures, um, what was happening was I was losing little Janelle. I lost her, you know. So um, coming back, I learned quite a bit about myself. And then I slipped again because, you know, life happens. Work changes happen. I think you get complacent. I think sometimes... So I look at it like a uh, prescription medication user, someone that's actually prescribed a psychotic medication right. of some sort, like Xanax or some other, uh, what's the word? There's a like word for Like an SSRI, an antidepressant. Yeah, yeah. Like well, Xanax is a good example to come up with, mm-hmm. right? People that take Xanax for anxiety feel this great amount of anxiety. So they take Xanax to, to stop that from happening. And then when they take those, what ends up happening is they start to feel really good after about three months of taking it, because it's systemic and it takes a mm-hmm. while for your body to uh, adjust to the medication. So your body adjusts to the medication and then you start to feel good the way the medication is supposed to make you feel good. So then you say, hey, I'm good. I don't need this now. Yep. It's, it's not something I have to do. And the moment you start taking it, they plunge. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of medication, people that are prescribed medication feel this roller coaster for that reason. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's behaviors too that you kind of get that high and then the plunge with too. Mm. You know, the attention I was getting at work, for example, and the attention seeking that I was doing as well. Um, it was, it's so funny. It's a roller coaster of dopamine and it was in, in, in my brain. As soon as I was alone, I would have these moments of isolation where then, of course, I wanted to do my old behaviors, which was drink and seek more behavior. So, um, it's really interesting. The brain is quite fascinating. Yeah, I would agree. I, I think the chemical things that happen in the brain when we feel good, when we feel bad, it's sometimes it's hard to draw the line where those are. And when you go through a traumatic event or if you have a traumatic upbringing or if you're familiar with trauma in general, mm-hmm. then there's this numbing that takes place. And then that line becomes blurred. Mm-hmm. To your point, you were seeking this attention at work and getting it. And it was going really well. Your career is on this amazing up into the right right trajectory, but your personal life is in shambles. Right. But it's so much easier to not focus on what you need to do to fix that personal life because, oh no, this is so much more important for me right now. Mm -hmm. This thing that I'm doing that's getting me all this positive attention. Right. And all the while, what's really important to you is sort of fading away in the background. Mm -hmm. Um, So tell me more about how that worked for you and where you drew the line. Like what was, there's always a tipping point, right? Mm-hmm. What, what was the tipping point for you? I'll tell you, I'll, if you share a little, like one second thing about you, okay. I'll share like a five minute <laughs> thing about me. Let's do it. Deal. Okay. <laughs> so my tipping point actually, um, it, like my official tipping point happened probably after my last intensive. So I went back to another intensive. I, I was lucky enough to go to a place called Save a Warrior, which mm-hmm. is uh, free for first responders and veterans. Right. Yeah. And, uh, they do a lot of Eastern philosophy, um, somatic work. They, they believe that you can't heal your head without healing your heart. So that's when I learned about the ACE scores. Mm-hmm. And that's when I learned that, um, that it is so important to understand that it's okay. It's okay to be who you are, you know? And um, 
really having a sisterhood, a cohort, so you know that you can lean on um, at all times. I was with Marines, ex-Marines. I mean, it was unbelievable. And each of them, all of us broke down and, and we, we were all strangers. You know, there was 10 of us. And now we have this really strong unionship um, that we hold each other accountable for. Mm-hmm. So having a community that can kind of call you out and set you straight, make sure that you're accountable. And uh, I think just really going back and letting go of some of the guilt that I had um, with some of the ceremonial things that they do there was absolutely beautiful and being surrounded by people that just loved and cared um, that were strangers. So it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. That's great. I I, I like the camaraderie of that. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's an interesting thing. So I, I've been talking about this for a while, uh, but it's, it's funny that we surround ourselves with people and those people's influences have an impact on our quote-unquote recovery, whatever mm-hmm. that might look right. like. For some people, it's a 12-step program. For other people, it's isolation. Mm-hmm. For some people, it's an outpatient program. It looks different for lots of people. There's not one solution. So for all you people out there that are you know, very violently suggesting to your friends with problems that they get help the way that you think they should get help, don't do that. That's yeah. not a good – you're not helping. So. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely talk to a professional for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, so I I think that when we go through a professional stint of growth Mm -hmm. and typically I look at this over like the course of about a year, because I think in a year, you know, at that point, like I'm moving in the right direction or maybe I should seek something else that's got some growth potential for me after that year. Um, In that year, that turmoil is so great. I remember my first year as a software sales professional being quite turbulent. I, I wasn't really confident in what I was selling or doing. Um, it took me a long time to get the conversation down. I wasn't really sure how to prospect or what I was looking for. LinkedIn was like a brand new thing for me. <laughs> um, and that was very overwhelming. And I remember at one point my wife turning to me and saying, do you ever not look at your phone? Mm. Uh, you're always on your phone. And it, I remember my brain saying to my, to my body, like, you're right. Like, just put this down now. (laughs) And at this point it's become a constant reminder for me. Every time I reach for it, I think, do I need that right now? And most of the time the answer is no. There's been a couple of, a handful of times where it's been necessary and I'm glad that I did, Mm -hmm. but most of the time it's not important. And I've been putting it down and you know, going in the pool and not taking it with me outside. If they call, I'll call back. Remember the time when people would just call you back? Yeah, I do. (laughs) So tell me about that for you. What's that look like for you? How do you balance the work life now that you're quote woke in the, uh, in the sense that you, you understand and you're self-aware, what's it look like for you, that balance? Yeah. So, um, so I am, so part of AA, there is another, um, it's called ACA or ACOA. So I do go to ACA meetings. That's adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families. That's my home. That makes me feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, but the phone is interesting though, because it, whether it's a phone call, a text, cause you know, you text, you can take a text wrong any day. It's true. Um, or even if somebody makes uh, a slight suggestion on something that I have pure intention on, um, I go into hijack mode instantly. And so usually the way I used to react to that was not a very positive way. I would combat, you know, because that's how I was I was raised. I had to survive and, um, uh, you know, that's just the way I had to be. So anyway, with all that being said, what I do now is, and perfect example happened last night. I had a, a, one of my friends um, who was supposed to do a podcast today. 
she um, was running late and she had some other appointments going on and she had texted me at midnight. And usually I would text people back. And I said, you know, I'm going to sit on this because maybe a a night's rest, I can react a little bit differently, Mm. you know? So, and another example is if somebody says something at a dinner table that they're misunderstanding that I might've said, instead of reacting, I'll just step outside and just take a couple minutes to breathe. Breathing has, so funny, I actually train (laughs) on tactical breathing and just doing it myself was really difficult, but actual breathing techniques really do work. They really do. And I just reset myself and come back. So I don't, now that I really know that my most important job is to be the best mother in the world, mm-hmm. my, my phone is, is secondary to me. Right. It's not, I, I don't, I'm not in fear of not making ends meet. I'm not in fear anymore of anything, but just being present for the last you know few years that I have with my daughter. Yeah. She's seven. So, you know, yeah. I've got maybe seven more years before she wants nothing to do with me. How are you preparing your daughter to deal with that fear? You know, we talk a lot. Um, what I say to her and she's been wonderful. Um, she's, obviously very empathetic, um, uh, is that it's really courageous to tell truths. You know, it's, she's at an age right now where she can, um, plan out cons <laughs> and, you know, make up some stories. I'm going to say this, but really this yeah. is going to happen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, or something will happen at school and I'm missing part of the story. And then we talk about how it's, it's important if you're courageous and you just say the truth, you're going to get so much more out of that than, to fib, you know, so she starts telling me about feelings and what, you know, maybe one of her best friends is doing, or they're no longer friends anymore. And I just want her to trust me. That's the one thing is to have an anchor or somebody in her family that she can trust openly yeah. with. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I've, I've got, I've got four kids. I've got two that are with, with their mom most of the time in uh, <laughs> South Carolina. And then I've got my stepkids that are five minutes up the road from me in wow. Tennessee. So we see them quite a bit. Um, and it's such an interesting thing to see the way that young people deal with stress today. Mm-hmm. Uh, what tools do you have in your back pocket for people out there that deal with stress and anxiety? Mm. Like, I know that you're like Batman when it comes to like, here's what you do, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so let's, so let's talk about tools that you yeah. use for coping with stress in those anxious situations. Yeah. And my daughter actually was way on the board uh, with this than I was at first. Uh, she's been doing meditation since she was three. Wow. Absolutely. I mean, I actually have videos of it cause I used to laugh at, it. I was like, where did she learn how to meditate? Yeah. Um, and I was always one of those people that talked about meditation and how it's a great tool. Mm-hmm. I did not actually use meditation until I went to Save a Warrior. Mm-hmm. Um, and really breathing and getting into a certain phase and understanding that, you know what, life, we have no control. As soon as you let go of those oars, this is just my philosophy, let go of the oars and let the boat take you where it needs to go. Right. Um, all the resistance, all the forces that you want to make happen end up happening anyway. (laughs) It's just interesting that way. So I I think that um, really the breathing and meditation, and there's a few apps that I can reference, uh, but they're wonderful. And Emma likes to do it too. And ironically, right when I got back from my last experience, uh, there was this vacant building in our little shopping area, a very small shopping center with like a Safeway and a CVS That's yeah. about it and a subway. But there's always been this huge vacant lot for like, oh gosh, over a year. When I came back, there was yoga for parents and meditation for parents and kids. Oh, wow. I was like, how does that happen? It's so funny how life works this way, right? It is. So it's, it's just about understanding balance and understand that you don't have any control. And I have to remind myself, by the way, because I'm very controlling. <laughs> 
Yeah. So let's talk about control for a while, because I think that's a big point of contention for a lot of the folks that might be tuning into this. Um, I think there's a miscommunication, a misunderstanding about what control really is, because Mm -hmm. we make choices and we equate those choices with control. But in reality, it's two very different things. We make lots of choices every day, but we don't necessarily have a lot of control over some of them. Some of them we have complete control over. Am I going to wear a black shirt? Am I going to wear a white shirt? Right. Right? That's complete control over that. But if I do this, this might happen. You don't always have control over the outcome of a specific scenario. And I think a lot of people that deal with stress, anxiety, grief, loss, pain, depression, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to to sort of decide outcomes that we have no control over. So what, how do you deal with that? And what is your experience with other people letting go of the control aspect of their lives? Right. I think you start realizing about control when something bad is happening to you Mm. where you don't have control, whether it's a, uh, you didn't get a a reaction. Yeah. It's a reaction. So things could be going really well and you feel like you're under control and then you don't get the promotion that you wanted. Uh. Right. All of a sudden you're thinking about all the other things in your life that you didn't get. Right. Oh my gosh, my dog pooped in my house. Excuse it. You know, but you know, and my daughter's sick now I have to go home. Um, it's, you know, it's this thing, it's called the broaden and build theory where you just start misery loves company. It loves it, right? It feeds off of it, just like happiness does. Sure does. Um, And so you start really kind of piling it on, and that's where the anxiety and the depression and, I mean, God forbid, suicidal ideation comes into play is because you feel like you're worth less than something else. And it's not. It's It's just not your time. There's always a plan. There's always a plan. Um, but you do get hijacked during those situations. You usually don't even care about control unless things are going um, against the way that you want it to. <laughs> I feel like that sense of worthlessness is very familiar mm-hmm. for a lot of us out there. Um, it's easy to feel like you don't measure up when you're after a goal that you've worked hard to achieve. Mm-hmm. I remember going back to college as a non-traditional student, being 30 years old, sitting in classrooms with 19-year-olds, feeling like <laughs> I definitely do not belong here. No one wants the old guy in their group. Let me just, I'm throwing that out there. Unless the project is about the 80s, and then they're like, definitely you. Come on in and tell us about Back to the Future more. You know, so it's it's that it's that type of like uncomfortable feeling. And I remember as, as 2014 May approached and graduation was around the corner. I remember my mother being so thrilled that this happened and me being kind of oblivious to the impact that it was having on my family. I, I like so many of them showed up mm-hmm. to support this. And, you know, I just can't believe that that you made it. If you'd asked anyone 15 years ago where I was today, they would tell you dead or in prison. So right. <laughs> for me, graduating from college, getting a bachelor's degree was truly remarkable in yeah. my family. That said, I, it did, the impact didn't really hit me until, you know, months later when my mom was like, I just, I just can't express to you how proud I am of you. Mm. And that really meant something more to me than the degree. I think that meant more to me than actually getting the degree. It really wasn't a, a personal win for me. It was a win for my family. Mm-hmm. And I didn't need to feel that pressure. Right. But it was on me and I didn't even know it. Yeah. I feel that goes back to the whole childhood thing. You know, one of the things that I learned too is as children, we have a tube we have to feed. Mm. So it doesn't really matter what family you're in. 
whether it's an abusive situation, verbally abusive or neglect, um, it, you have to survive as a child. So you have to eat, you have to, you know, have clothing on. So you just put a smile on your face and you pretend everything's okay. And you actually think it is. I Mm. mean, that's just the way you are as a child. So that probably has a lot to to do with it when it comes into play. Is she behind me? she is, but it's fine. Okay. Uh, it's a, it's an interesting, it's an interesting relationship there between your parents and your, and your kids. And then when you become an adult, looking back at that relationship can be quite eye opening. Mm-hmm. I learned things as an adult about my parents that were truly shocking. Yeah. Things I never would have known. Things that w- will change who you thought your parents were. Uh, and then going back to college and learning sociology, I minored in sociology, I majored in writing and going back to sociology classes and then looking at my dad's history and realizing why he was the way he was mm-hmm. and then realizing why I was the way I was and thinking about my grandfather. And then on my mother's side, thinking about the trauma of my grandfather dying at 50 years old and, you know, all seven of those kids having to to go through that mm-hmm. together it, it truly was, it's, it's, what's the word? It's uh, enlightening is yeah. probably the best word because we're all out there trying to find that sense of self, right? Yeah. A sense of peace, a sense mm-hmm. of acceptance of who we are. And it takes that historical background it to does. really bring it into focus. Yeah. Tell me about your, your background in that regard. Like what makes Janelle, Janelle? Well, I definitely had an aha moment. Okay. And that was when Emma, my daughter was, I was, breastfeeding her. And, um, the memories that I had before about my mom, uh, not being around. Right. Um, I always f- forgave her for that. I didn't want to add guilt to that. Mm-hmm. I always knew she had probably tremendous guilt about doing that. Yeah. And then when I'm looking at this baby, I'm saying, why would somebody give me to a former Marine corpsman or Navy corpsman from Vietnam that has suicidal ideation, that is verbally abusive and a severe alcoholic, right? Why would you hand a child to to that person to take care of? Yeah. Um, So talk about aha moments. Yes, it's a different, it's almost like a different lens. It's sometimes it's enlightening and sometimes it's a little shocking too. Very. And um, I certainly didn't want to tear my mom my mom relation, my mom's relationship with me. So going back to therapy again, you know, doing those things. Um, and then as far as overall ahas, I think that every day I learn something from somebody else. You know, I, I, I'm constantly being fed information and I'm doing the actual work this time. And so saying I'm doing the work, I'm actually doing it, which is through the 12 step program. So gotcha. do you remember, uh, the Jenny McCarthy era? Yes, of course. Yeah. Like I, she so was like the, the hot, funny chick. <laughs> funny. I don't know. It was a stretch. I remember some people having <laughs> a little her. bit of a backlash for that. Like she was farting on camera and See, picking her nose my and crass, stuff. My like, crass sense of humor. So. It was just, no, I mean, like it's, I, I, I think it was funny for the right type for of sense of humor. I think I kind of old. It, when it's repetitive that way, it becomes yeah. who you are and that's not good. But right. uh, I, I remember how that shifted when she married Jim Carrey and suddenly she became the mom mm-hmm. and people were like, oh my God, Jenny McCarthy has a mom. I think addicts feel that way about becoming sober. Yeah. Everyone around them is like, oh, is that guy sober? Like, no way. Oh yeah. The internal stigma is yeah, I just the hardest. He's never going to make it, you know, like that's and the kind of doubt that do. circles our brains constantly. Yeah. It's an interesting thing. I, it is. I, I try really hard to give people the benefit of the doubt. Uh, but again, I, you know, when you look at that stigma of 
what actually happens in these groups. Yeah. You know, so. No, no, no. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. And so have you been to treatment? So I was in a behavioral health facility as a teen. Okay. Um, I never actually got any treatment for my addiction. I simply moved away yeah. from where I was buried in it. Well, and it good. was the best thing that I did because right. I didn't have access. Right. I, I went from Miami, Florida, the cocaine capital of the world, right. of the U.S. Good. anyway. <laughs> uh, and then I moved to East Tennessee, which is not known for cocaine <laughs> at all. So <laughs> it, was a, it was harder to get. It was yeah. easier for me to focus on what I needed to be. I was living in a small town that mm-hmm. was completely surrounded by mountains. There was like isolation there to a degree. Um, but that really helped me with overcoming that that adversity of of you know how do i how do i not do this anymore how do i be a different person that that is huge like right. you're you, when you when you're an addict of any kind coming out of that addiction is essentially asking yourself who am i right and it's such a bigger question than how do i stop snorting coke or how do i stop smoking Ugh. cigarettes uh or how do i stop drinking it's a bigger question than even that that is only one step towards the bigger question of who right. am I? Right. Well, and coming back too. So whether it's an intensive or a long, you know, stint, when you come back into life, you don't even feel like the same person anymore. No. 90% of the friends that you wanted to reach out with, you, you don't want to anymore because they're probably a liability or a danger. Yeah. And you almost feel like you, your identity is completely lost. I mean, I've seen it in so many of my friends where they're just like, I don't even know what to do. I, I feel lonely. It's scary. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of fear, let's let's dive into a couple of good stories that you had mentioned before. So I have we have two examples here that Janelle's going to share with us, guys. And I think the examples are on the both extremes of the spectrum. So mm-hmm. I, we're talking about what it's like to be a professional and work in a professional environment, but have to explain to your boss what you're struggling with. Mm-hmm. So give me the two stories that you have with how this worked for you in both instances, because I think people need to be aware that it could go either way. Okay. Well, I'm going to start with the the bad one first. Yeah, let's go. Yeah, okay. Negative stuff out of the so, way. So, um, you know, I was uh, spiraling down, um, just really self-sabotage. That's what I called it. I was just, I was doing things to hurt myself, not cutting or anything like that, but just harmful behaviors, um, things that were high risk. And um, I finally decided it was time for me to get some help. And I reached out to my mid-level manager um, who was very shocked, even though she also knew. Um, And so she kind of just pushed me a little bit to the side and stopped uh, answering my calls and my emails and my texts. And it felt very isolating. And I didn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. Um, So I decided to, you know, go the FMLA process and just, you know, keep going. And then um, I also reached out to the vice president of the company at the time and asked for help. And I really felt um, even in one of the largest behavioral health organizations in the world that I was being stigmatized by coming out and being open about it. Even Mm. though I had this amazing professional career where I was, you know, all over the country uh, working with chiefs, you know, of, of departments like, you know, um, Las Vegas, you know, chief of police and stuff like that, uh, talking about this, it wasn't okay for me to have these issues. And it was devastating. Um, I couldn't recover from it. In fact, I ended up, that's the reason why I ended up having the creative strategy group was because there was no way I could go back to an organization that did not treat their own employees with things that we practice what we preach. That's right. So, um, it was, it was devastating. I've, I've not had a catastrophic depression, 
um, and felt isolated and um, horrible as much as I did during that whole transition. It was really difficult. Hmm. Um, but I did get out of it, which was great. I had, thank goodness, I identified, um, we do this at the, in the Air Force. They taught us this uh, five, they call it personal board of directors, which I love. Um, and basically what you do is you find five people, you let them know that they're on your personal board of directors. And that way they started reaching out to me. I was not responding cause I was just in my bed. I couldn't move. I couldn't believe it. Paralyzed. Yeah. And, um, finally they, they got a hold of me. They started talking. Each of them were sending me affirmations and texts. They all have different personalities. Rally to the support. Yeah. Yeah. And so they kind of picked me up, lifted me up and I started moving again and, you know, lo and behold, I wasn't even going to start working in, um, as a consultant. Um, but things started coming to me cause I started letting it go, you know? Yep. So my good story though, <laughs> um, one of the best CEOs still to this day, I'm, I think of him and I get emotional cause I could not believe, and this is how you really get loyal, uh, employees to stay with you for life. Um, so when my dad was, uh, transitioning, he was passing away. Um, and it was a really horrific experience because of, of MRSA. Um, I got a call. It was week one that I started. So it was the first week. And you know how eager you are in, in business development when you're starting. <laughs> yeah. You want to learn everything you can. Your CRM, yeah. everything that you can. Week one, you week, can't stop. Oh, yeah. you're just itching out of your skin. You know, you just want to go. How do and I get on the phone? Yes, <laughs> yes. And um, my interview process for this was probably the hardest interview I've ever been through. It was a six month interview process. Wow. And, yeah. It was pr- for business development. Yeah. Man. Yeah. It was national though. So it was, you know, national accounts, wow. but still it was, um, really, I was, I mean, I had to go in front of a panel. It was, it was That's pretty rather intense. rigorous. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, anyway, long story short, when my dad was in the hospital, I got a phone call from, um, the CEO and he said, I just want you to know that your job is here. Wow. And I said, thank you. And you know, I was a kind of out of it. My dad was, you know, passing away. And he's like, I just want you to know we're keeping your job. It's here for you until you return. You just take your time, be with your father, take as much time as you need. Yeah. And as a for your first week, you're like, okay, much time is that a week? Like what 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 is that? You know? But I didn't I didn't, you know, give him ask him that question. Mm-hmm. He was allowing me to have the space. He even sent me flowers and a letter, which was very kind. And I had to take about three and a half weeks, four weeks off, um, just during my dad's transition and, and just, you know, obviously, um, you know, have, coming together as a family and stuff like that. Um, and I'll never forget that because when I, he actually paid me during that first, uh, the first three weeks mm-hmm. that I was on, I didn't qualify for FMLA. He could have easily let me go, but a true leader understands that compassion, whether you know the individual employee or not, um, you have a lifelong advocate. And really, that's what it comes down to in business development and sales. If your leader is a great leader, they will work for you um, until the day that they have to transition for some reason, you know. But it's it's really about leadership. So the C-level's out there. Open your doors. Have empathy. And if you're seeing somebody that's in concern, get out of the office and walk with them. It's one of the best tools you can use, really. Yeah, I would agree. I, I've, I've, I want to start doing my one-on-one meetings with my sales team in the car. We, I live in a beautiful place, the Smoky Mountains of East Tennessee, mm-hmm. and uh, just driving through the mountains and having one-on-one meetings, it's uh, a little bit more of a bonding experience. Mm-hmm. I feel like it builds our relationship and our trust. Uh, but even still, the the concept of your company giving you the time to deal with what's happening. And supporting you through that is huge. 
one of the things that I talk about often is that I was very lucky when my father passed. I had a lot of time to say goodbye. Um, some people never get that mm-hmm. that gift, you know. So I always I always appreciated that um, that I was in a place where I could spend as much time with him as I could and be able to talk to him as often as possible, even though he had a hard time speaking. Um, what did, did I assume that you used that time to spend with him and your family and help mm-hmm. get things as moved forward as you could during that time? I know death in a family tends to bring out the worst in some people. Yeah. Um, what was it like for you having this career going so well, but then having your father in the shape that he was in right. um, and dealing with that, that struggle of family during that time? How did that unfold for you? Yeah, that's a really good question. So um, there's been a lot of death in my family. Hmm. And so, you know, some of my family members almost acted like it was a business like, uh, we're going to close it out right off the books, you know, do not resuscitate, sell the house, you know, just basically line item my father. That's how I felt. I felt like they were line iting my father, Yeah, which was really hard because some of them were really close relatives to him. Sure. So I also think I'm not giving them an out, but I also think because they were so used to it, my dad's sister passed away six months before too. So uh, it was a lot going on. We're going to go through all the same motions. Yeah. yeah. So it was very robotic, you know, I needed human touch. I needed hugs. I needed family. Support. And, you needed support. And feel like I had that. Yeah. In fact, um, his ceremony was actually at his AA meeting um, in Tahoe. So that's where he lived. It was in Lake Tahoe. So uh, it was difficult. And I did have time with my dad. Um, he was in hospice, and they said he had three to five days. Um, and he's tough tough guy. Yeah. Um, so it was really hard to see him kind of wither away. Uh, he finally told me I had to go because – he didn't, I don't think he wanted me to see him. I heard that often. I know it well. Yeah. yeah. And it was really difficult because I knew I, I, I wanted to stay, but he really wanted me to go. Did you ask him if he was proud of you? You know, he was barely talking. Mm. He could only kind of look up once in a while. He stared at my husband at the time quite a bit. I think he was trying to like send him a message of love, you know? So that was quite beautiful. He would look at me too and, and, and try to look at me. But at that point he had boot pneumonia and he had tubes everywhere. So it was so really much bad. happening. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we were just trying to touch him and love him and be there. And he finally, we'd say a couple words and he just looked at me one time. He said, go, just go. And I'm like, are you sure? And this is after day seven or eight, right? Are you sure? And he said, go. I think he just didn't want to see me, see him, you know, transition which was hard because I wanted to be there. I think we all kind of want to be there when our anybody that we love is transitioning. Absolutely. I, you know, death is uh, very powerful. I, I took a death and dying class in college, and we focused a lot on what it, what it is, right, and all these traditions. So let's unpack that, if I may. Um, some people believe different things, right? I want to be buried. I want to be mm-hmm. cremated. I, I don't want any of that. I want to do this other thing. Um, w- when we talk about traditions, we really, uh, it goes back quite a ways, but we don't have any real explanation as to why we grieve the way that we do. Uh, there's no historical background that says we have to put our dead in a box and put them in the ground. Like, we don't know why we do these things. We simply do them. Mm-hmm. So what was that like on the family side? For me, it was quite 
the argument because my father had very specific wishes, but other people were holding tight to tradition tradition and Mm -hmm. weren't willing to go any route. And then they had to learn the hard way that it didn't matter what they wanted. It was about his will. Uh, So that had to have been something you dealt with too. I don't think I've met a person yet that's lost a parent Mm -hmm. that hasn't had that experience of trying to figure out, okay, well, sorry, person, whoever you are, right. doesn't matter what you want at this moment. It's not about you. Uh, how many times did you have to have that conversation? Um, well, quite a bit. Yeah. Um, also just, I feel like a lot of people, uh, adults, including myself, when my daughter gets a little bit older though, uh, we don't have these conversations. So I had no idea that my dad had life insurance. He had two policies that yeah. he paid on time. No one I, talks about that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I had no idea about the will or if he had one, where it was, or, yeah. you know, and I knew where his, 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 you know, a BB gun was, but I didn't know where, right, yeah. you know, I, just I know where you keep the 22 at, yeah, man. <laughs> totally. But you know, I, I, um, and so I had to kind of learn this through other people in different ways. And my, my step, my ex stepmother, she felt very entitled to a lot of things too. And he wasn't even he wasn't, he hadn't even passed away yet. So there was, of course, there was always this, my dad did not want to be resuscitated. It was very obvious. And we are already breaking rules. We put him on a respirator. We had tubes down his throat. Yeah. And You're I already tell, circumventing everything yes, he wanted, right? Everything that he wanted. Right. Um, however, when he did go, um, my aunt, who's lovely, lovely individual, Janet, um, her and my husband and I walked up to this little hidden lake in Lake Tahoe and, and spread his ashes. Nice. Um, so that was ab- absolutely beautiful. Yeah. And then, of course, the house I thought I was going to, you know, inherit or at least have um, was sold immediately. And then, you know, everything kind of just ended up being a line item, sure. which is that's just the way life is. But um, it was difficult. Life's full of line items. Yeah, life is full of line items. So and let's talk about something that I think everyone wants to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, of all of these experiences that you've had, tell me how they shaped Janelle Kronk as a professional. It's mm, a good question. Well, so I think now if I were to be working as hard as I did before, which will never happen. Um, in fact, I'm realizing that people respect me more that I say no than I say yes all the time. Used to, I used to be labeled a golden retriever. <laughs> Go get just it. Just go good. Yes, whatever, whatever. Just let me get like those us. numbers, whatever, you know. I would just do I would go anywhere just to, you know, please and you know, whatever, get the sale that I needed, right? So now I, I take pause. Um, I think that's a huge thing. The example I mentioned earlier, just with the text, instead of reacting right away, just taking pause. I think people start setting boundaries with you instead of you setting setting boundaries with them, if that ah. makes sense. Yep. Um, through silence. I'm a talker. Like that's what I do for a living is talk. Yep. So it's really interesting that how powerful the tool of silence is. Um, so that's my number one thing right now. And just, and, and you know, this whole thing about work-life balance, I still question that because there's no such thing as true balance. I mean, you're, when you're balancing, you're kind of wibbly wobbly anyway. Mm. Um, that's an interesting take on that. Yeah. It's a philosophy I learned from chief Freeman from Las Vegas. So, hmm. uh, but understanding what's the priority in your life and understanding that guess what catastrophic events are going to happen and prepare yourself for that and just make sure that you have the right people in play so you don't end up taking it all in somatically and then somehow it it ends up surfacing somehow whether it's you know alcohol mental health or you know a process behavior like um you know seeking you know seeking uh, other people for attention and stuff like that so. so do you feel like you're more independent as a professional now than you ever have been as yes. a result of this 
what I would refer to as a hardening of the skin. Yeah. Um, I always said that, uh, so I, I train salespeople quite regularly. I talk to them often about their goals and what they come up with and personal branding. And they always say things like, I want to get up to your level of content. I want to start creating the way that you create. And I always ask, why haven't you yet? And they go, I don't know. And then my response, I have two questions that I follow that with. One, are you an only child? Um, and they always wonder why I ask that. And then my, my, and I'll tell you why, I guess, since we're having the conversation, mm-hmm. I say, because if you're an only child, then you've spent your life with two people around you that only care about what you get out of every scenario. And that translates into our adult and professional lives. So we're, that's why salespeople are, they have commission breath. My friend Larry Levine is noted for saying, <laughs> I smell your commission breath, right? You do. Uh, and, and it, it reeks. It's terrible because you're out <laughs> to fill your pocket, right? You don't mm-hmm. really care about me as your customer. You care about your pocket. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason is because you're only concerned with what you get if this closes or right. if this person demos or whatever your goal might be. Uh, so I talk about that. And if you're not an only child, then you have siblings and you know what it is to share and you know what it is to wait your turn and you know that you're not that important and you know that there are other people involved in the scenario. I have two sisters. Can you tell? So, <laughs> so when, so, so then I follow that question with, are both of your parents still alive? Yeah. And they don't understand why that's a question either. And then I always say, because there's more important things that you could be focused on mm. instead of, why not you, right? When you lose a parent, that suddenly becomes so minimal. You're, everything else in your life, professional, personal, doesn't matter. It all gets the volume turned way down, yeah. way down to the point where it's almost non-existent. Because when you lose a parent, you lose a part of yourself, something you'll never get back. So I ask those questions to salespeople and I have to ask, do you have those personal questions with your people that you come in contact with on a professional level? Yeah, so I do, and they're different now. Um, I think when you speak with your heart, so whatever your whatever sales position you have or, or tech position, trying to find something that you really identify and connect with, that is going to be your driver. Mm. Um, and I always look around the room, I profile, you know, I look around the room, I try to find things that I can identify with. I know for a fact that whatever I'm selling, whether it's a sprocket or if it's a training event, because I'm a consultant now, so I do a lot of trainings and stuff. Um, it's not about what the content is. It's not about the sprocket. Guess what? We have this thing called um, the internet. You can go look up every bell and whistle for yeah. everything now. It's about who I am. It's about showing up and being there. So I think it's important to find that why within your own industry and then integrating it into a personal aspect. I think it, there is an integration. I'm an only child. Nice. Yes, I'm an only child. Nice. So um, I think also just understanding that you can do it and when you have those moments of self-doubt, Reflecting on those, those questions are wonderful questions to ask. I love those. I might even use those myself. Feel free. Yeah, I, yeah. I think they're very helpful for a lot of people. They're really good. I also encourage people, and I know we mentioned this already, is to just to get out of the office because there's something about walking parallel with somebody, whether they have um, a higher ranking position than you or not, uh, or if you are a higher ranking position like a C-level or a VP, Take that person that you're concerned with, whether it's a sales because they're, you know, slacking this quarter and, you know, in in their sales or not, man, walk with them down to a Starbucks and have a coffee with them. Walk back and see how they can open up and watch the sales increase. 
is really about human connection. That's all it's about. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. And I think that when people truly connect with one another, we provide a support system like no other. Absolutely. Um, You know, I I support every 12-step program that's out there 100%. But I do have a lot of examples of people that that has not worked for. It does not look the same for everybody. Um, There are some major issues in our professional lives that we can't see. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the next time that person doesn't meet that deadline that you sit next to or your assistant can't make it to work that day, find out why before you fly off the handle and get upset and start accusing them of ditching their job or whatever it might be. For all you know, they're having a, a strong personal experience right now that outweighs their position and you're just not that important to them at that moment and that's mm-hmm. okay. Um, so Janelle, tell everybody out there that's listening how they should contact you and why they should contact you. Okay. Well, so the reason why you should contact me is if you ever need any help, I'm definitely a professional in the industry. I can help at least navigate and connect you to the right folks. Um, my cell phone number, I can easily get that out or I can give my email out. I give out my cell number every day. Okay. So feel I'm, free. I'm not afraid either. So it's 415-572-9933. And um, so what I do is if a, a mother is calling or if it's an actual person that is in need of assistance immediately for behavioral health issues, including substance abuse, um, I take their information. There's a lot of intricacy that you have to have. Don't Google shop. No offense to Google. Don't Google shop, though. Uh, people actually do more research on purchasing a car than they do getting their own health care situated. Wow. Is, is that real? Is that well, a statistic that's health, real? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, think about it. You're not in crisis, though, usually when you're purchasing a car. So it's a little, you know, oranges versus I don't know. Apples. I know some people with some jalopies <laughs> out there. That can, that's, that's an emergency. But, um, so there's professionals out there that can actually, I'm a connector. I'm a natural connector. So, you know, basically I listen to the story. I understand. And just being in the industry for, you know, gosh, I hate to date myself, 10 plus years. Then I was mm. in pharmaceuticals before that. Yep. Um, I really know how to connect the right people. I'm not a clinician, but I certainly can help you find the right person. Um, and know that you're not alone. Uh, you can feel free to text me too if you just need to talk, and I can also help you navigate the waters in your area. I love that. Yeah. That's great. Uh, so, so there are countless things to talk about when it comes to our support systems. I, mm-hmm. I want to know from you. Everyone out there has a group of people, a person, an industry, a team. Um, as you said, a, a core. Uh, I think we we interviewed Jenny Gaither as well. She has a core four, huh. as she calls it. Yeah. Shout out Jenny Gaither. You were a great guest. We love you. <laughs> um, but, but I liked her core four concept. Mm-hmm. She has four friends that she leans on very heavily mm-hmm. uh, that have never let her left her side, never let her down, always been there for her. Who has it in your life that's been there for you the yeah. whole time? Um, gosh, there's maybe just like three all my entire life, you know, or for a long period of time that I've stuck with me. The key three. The key three. (laughs) But I do have, like we mentioned before, just the board of directors, the personal board of directors. I'm a little strategic with that and I can explain that too. But, um, you know, when you're going through hell, I'm just going to say it. I was, I was a mess. I I'm lucky enough that I still had two or three friends that's, that held on to me. Yeah. I mean, cause I was just. I was swinging and punching. I wanted everybody just to get away from me. Everybody. So you you find out who your close friends are when you're going through um, any kind of depression, anxiety, grief, what have you, substance abuse too, obviously. Um, 
But I also think it's important to identify people that maybe have qualities that you don't necessarily have. This also works for business too. So not just behavioral health, but business. And that's where my board of directors comes into play. Mm -hmm. So I have uh, five. One's actually my dad because he's the reason why I work for the military and for first responders. But he's got duct tape on his mouth because he's not allowed to say anything. He was quite verbally abusive when I was a child. So, um, but he's my purpose. You know, that's my driver now for, for business development. And then I identified four too. So, and each of them had uh, qualities that I certainly didn't have. Uh, one is Vinny um, from New York. <laughs> How cliche is that? Uh, but hey, he's, hey, yo, Vinny. Um, <laughs> so, and he would be rolling his eyes right now. But anyway, uh, he's an observer, man. He could sit in a room and observe everybody. He doesn't say a word. I, I was a little nervous even talking with him, but he could actually profile everybody, knew who wasn't getting along, even though we were all smiling, pretending to. Mm. He knew everybody to a T. He was just brilliant, right? And his EI skills were just, I mean, just shocking. Absolutely shocking. And then I had another one named Paul. He's a motivational speaker. So whenever I needed love, I would call Paul and he'd tell me how wonderful I am. Pump you up. <laughs> yeah, I'd just be like, Chanel, you were the most wonderful, perfect person, you know, and just filling my soul. Good. And then, you know, other ones, like I had uh, Chief Freeman, who I've mentioned before. Sure. She's my admin. So when I would had to go have those crucial conversations with my manager and I knew it was punitive for some reason, uh, she would tell me to stay in my lane. It's hard for me to stay in my lane sometimes. <laughs> I'm a little rebel. Um, and to be quiet. Because I usually want to explain the reasons why I did X, Y, and Z, you know, because usually my intentions are good. They really are. So um, I think identifying people like that, that you know will always be there for you, and they are. They will all. And then tell them, please, tell them that they're either on your personal board of directors or the core four. Um, Because once you tell them, it's an honor. I'm on several. It's an honor, and it's also a responsibility. So when you get that text, hey, can you talk? You know it's coming from somebody that is on your board of directors, mm-hmm. and you need to get to them as as much as quick as you can. You even say, "Is it an emergency?" Just in case. But usually, I reach out to my my core four, if you will, um, when I'm in time of need. So yeah. All right. All right. So okay. we're talking about routines. We're talking mm-hmm. about best practices. We're talking about roles. Tell me on your best day what your routine looked like, what role you were carrying, and Mm -hmm. uh, how that all shook out when you were going through this personal experience. Okay. Um, so I, my role, I was actually the first strategic account manager for the largest behavioral health company in the world. Um, they tried to woo me over a few times and I'll tell you why they wooed me over so many times. Um, (laughs) I wanted to go into consulting, but it was an offer I couldn't refuse. They told me to make up my own job description. I couldn't even believe that. So I got to, I looked up something that sounded corporate strategic account manager. That sounded pretty good. And I, between myself and my um, my vice president at the time, we came up with a really good job description that was nat- on a national level. Yeah, I was pinching myself; I couldn't believe it. Um, being the first ever in the largest, you know, publicly traded uh, behavioral health company, it was a pretty big deal. So, what I the reason why they wooed me over and they wanted me in, on different levels, and what works for me today still in business development is I don't work for my for my company; I work for my accounts. So I, back in the day at Xerox, they used to have amazing training and they taught us this thing called needs assessment. It still works so wonderful. Mm-hmm. What is it you need? You know, what's, what is it that you're lacking and look around, uh, offer them services that maybe is, is not in your technical wheelhouse at work, but you can certainly provide for them, you know, whether it's just connecting them with somebody else, but really pretend that you're working for your account and not working for 
the person that you work for and gives you your paycheck. That's right. Yeah. That's what earned my status. That's what got me to a level where I was doing joint ventures and partnerships. Do you feel um, like that mentality motivated you quite a bit too? Oh, yes. I feel like I'm much more motivated when I'm focused on my customer and not my job. Yes. And I mean, that, I think that's why they wanted me so bad to come over to, to this organization was because I was doing things different. I didn't just play well in, uh, in the sandbox. You'll hear that quite often, I, you know, um, but really just digging in and, and being present and showing up and having you know, just five crucial accounts. I'm sure everybody's heard about that, the top yeah. five, and really hyper-focusing on how to make them better, you know, with your services or not. Um, then you're a trusted advisor and then they're lifers. I have so many people that are lifers with me that will go anywhere with me, even with my consulting practice because of the way that I look and dig deep. That's interesting. Yeah. Tell me more about digging deep. What's that look like for you? Gosh. How's um, that different? So it's different. Like, um, gosh, well, this is dating myself. But um, so back when I was a clinical liaison, um, this is a good example. Uh, I had a doctor. So there's a lot of doctors out there in pain management, let's say, right? So sure. I had to close numbers. This was pharmaceuticals, by the way. I was a clinical liaison, just a little level up. I was training a little bit with physicians. But you go into a doctor's office. They're overwhelmed. You notice that if you go on and you Google search, their Yelp has three stars. But you know they're great doctors. Um, but they're all over the place. They certainly don't know how to market themselves, right? They <laughs> yeah. just don't. They don't Doctors to, are not very good yeah, at that. Yeah, I mean, some are really good. I would give the, the 0.1% uh, yeah. a thumbs up. I do have a, a good a good shout out there from MedSnake Media, whose Ooh. mission is to market for doctors and medical practices. Awesome. Call yeah. me. Maybe I can help. So. There you go. <laughs> there you go. But um, so I would I would actually make little infomercials for them, you know, and put it on Google for oh, that's it. Yes, great. like on YouTube and stuff. Get them a YouTube channel. Just, you know, going a little outside of the box. Yeah. But nothing that would get myself in trouble. In fact, I, I won Entrepreneur of the Year that year because I actually went outside of the box. I partnered with the Purdue, the makers of OxyContin, right? Because they had um, they were forced to by the DEA to go out and do this thing called REMS, which basically is a risk evaluation for for phys- physicians. And so I created a partnership with them, which was unheard of, of two pharmaceutical companies working together. Yeah, because we were the solution. I had um, the medication buprenorphine, Suboxone. That's what the White House is um, really pushing down everybody right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was those kind of things of really just collaboration and teamwork for the betterment of your. Cl- client, not the betterment of you. If you put yourself towards the end of the, the trail, you'll find out you'll get a lot more food. <laughs> oh, nice. I <laughs> yeah. like that analogy. That's yeah. good. So that seems to work for me. And my daily routine, just to, I had a mentor also, also, I'll give a shout out to Steve Gutzler for this. He really helped me was identifying the green, yellows, and reds. So I'm in sales. The last thing I want to do is a spreadsheet. Good Lord, do Amen. not put me in front Amen. of you. No more spreadsheets. I mean, I'll do Instagram all day, but don't put me in front of a spreadsheet. So um, I would try, I would need to prioritize things into like what is important today, what I need to do this week as greens, what is kind of important as yellows and reds. And it really helped me structure it. I'm a very visual person, so I have whiteboards all over my office. Um, some that are just like hot penning and then some that are just very, very focused on what is priority. And for me, priority is always follow up. Follow-up is the most crucial thing ever. And everybody has these different ratios, eight times, and then they get it, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> no, just just show up. If you can't show up, send them a fun meme. You know, make it politically correct. It's supposed course. to be fun. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, life is supposed to be fun, and people actually appreciate that stuff. Um, 
even though a lot of people are hesitant to do it, uh, it's just these little gestures of kindness that people really seem to resonate with. So you feel like your routine consisted of more fun than work and that sort of changed the way that you were approaching your role. Yeah. I mean, and that would switch at times if there was deadlines, of course, you know, if I, yeah, if I had to submit my expense report, it would be in the green, but you know, usually, uh, the green stuff was really about building strong, valuable relationships with one or two major accounts, you know? So that would be it. And then the yellows were building, you know, a trusted advisor role with some future ones. And then the, the reds were always admin. You know, you can do it, but it's not absolutely necessary right now. What's most important is to build relationships. What's your message out there for the other strategic account managers of the world? Well, bless you all, because I know it's, <laughs> it's a lot of work. I, I, I agree to the, you know, 70% travel, not realizing it was really 70% travel. It's a lot. Um, so uh, get your points, too. Uh, no joke there. <laughs> but um, also just remember, it's okay to say no. Um, you do have a family at home. That was my biggest, uh, you know, I was pinching myself with some of the partnerships I had. I, I, my own delusions of how important I was. I lost, I lost the most important things in my life, you know, for a moment. I thank goodness I got it back. But um, just remember that you're here to serve others first off. That's number one. And number two, it's okay to say no. Take some time for yourself, too. And you, you don't have to be the winner. You know, it's not a giant competition all the time, especially as SAMs, strategic account managers. There seems to be this very... Um, high-profile competitiveness, because there's usually like maybe four at a large, large company. Um, you can work together in different uh, silos, if you will, but um, always lean in with each, each other and try to befriend each other too, because you're going to need each other, especially when the market goes up and down, stuff like that. Yeah, introductions are key. I, I love having a large network to draw value from. Mm-hmm. I find that more and more people are reaching out to me directly telling me, hey, this person could use your help. That's different than I found someone that could use your product. Right. Hey, I have a hot lead for you. I have a hot lead. (laughs) Yeah. Like, what does your hot lead look like? (laughs) My hot lead might look different than your hot lead. Uh, But I like the ones that say this person could use your help. Mm -hmm. I always feel like those are so much more fruitful for Mm -hmm. me conversation wise. Uh, Part of it is that I, I have this element of guilt for being an asshole when I was a kid. Uh, I was, I was kind of a bully in, in high school. I was bigger than everybody. It was a easy thing for me to be. And I had a great mentor at home for what it was to be bullied. So, mm-hmm. so, uh, th- there's this element of kindness to me that I think is like my first stop every time. Like what's the kind response, yeah. right? Sometimes I, I have to deny that kind response and be like, I need to be, right. I need to be rude right now. I need to be assertive right now. I need to be aggressive right now, but always kind. So mm-hmm. I, I, Tell me what you think about this. This is something I've been using for years and I've, I've given it out a couple times and it's useful. I use a mathematical formula for all of my outreach. So it's C plus P to the third power equals S, right? <laughs> I so, <laughs> so, so C, courteous, right? You're always courteous. And then P to the third power, three Ps, mm-hmm. uh, p- patient, professional, and persistent. Mm-hmm. And it always leads me to success. And you can put a little dollar sign there oh, for the S. It's good. Yeah. Because it works good. really well. I've been yeah. called pleasantly annoying in my <laughs> outreach. And I'm fine with that. I've been called <laughs> okay. so much worse. I have an ex-wife. Yes. So... <laughs> 
fine line from persistence to stalking. I've gotten that one. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm just being persistent. It's persistence okay. to stalking. That is a fine line, isn't it? Like you're sometimes. So, yeah. I had a, I had a, a VP once tell me that he sent 45 emails on 45 Wednesdays to one guy, and the guy responded, "Are you ever going to go away?" And he was like, "Not now." Mm-hmm. <laughs> you just, you just, just responded. Just so responded. It's on. Yeah. I had another one where I tell sales reps all the time to call and just leave your name and phone number. Mm-hmm. So I had somebody call me and say, Hey, I just wanted to tell you that that worked for me, but it worked in a weird way. And I was like, tell me what you mean. And he said, somebody had called him and was like, you have to tell people why you're calling. No one will ever call you back. And he was like, are you sure? <laughs> you just called me. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. It's pretty funny. That's really good. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, uh, tell, tell me about your website. What, what's your website? Um, I, Janelle Cronk.com is, is my w- website. Um, it's, you know, I'm pretty casual as you'll see on my website. And, uh, like I said, you guys can reach out anytime you'd like. Um, and I can just help out whether it's advice on business development or advice at home. I'm here just to be of service. And I think just to kind of lean in a little bit more on what you were saying with, with your, wonderful formula. I think it's important for us to all realize that we're here on earth to serve. That's what we're here for is. And if we serve others, we end up end up having a full plate. It usually works out. Oh, I really like the way that says, did you yeah. just make that up right yeah. now? I just pulled that one right yeah, up. Yeah, man. High five Thanks. on that. That was really good. <laughs> if we serve others, we end up with a full plate. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. But not too full. Cause you don't want to like get over full. <laughs> Well, and just, I just mean I can get burnout. Balance, but balance isn't real either. It's kind of. Yeah, it's a little bit wobbly. (laughs) There's theories. So So check us out at uncrushed.org. Please, if you want to tell your story, you want to come on the podcast, I'd love to have you reach out to me. You can reach me direct. Text me 305-632-6005. Or you can call me. I'm one of those weird people that actually answers their phone. It's true. He does. (laughs) Thanks, you guys. Thanks for coming to the show, Janelle. Thank you so much.